possibility of greenhouses out here as a way for people to grow food on a temporary basis and to have a temporary place to live. And uh, I thought of tents. We can't really build anything. Uh, planning and zoning would be on us in an instant if we started putting up a bunch of homes or trailers or whatever. Uh, and things may change dramatically before people come here anyway, so that that would not be a problem. Uh, on the other hand, I feel somehow we need some kind of protection from the weather and, and the capacity to grow food. It even says in Zechariah 3 about the time of the gathering that uh, people would have their own vine and fig tree. Uh, that's symbolic of plenty uh, vine and fig tree and be able to take care of themselves. So perhaps greenhouses aren't uh, vines and fig trees, but their broccolis and cabbages and tomatoes and <laughs> whatnot that you can sustain yourself on. So I don't know whether the vines and fig trees is a literal thing or not, but it is a symbol of being able to take care of yourself and have your own things uh, instead of total communism where our nation is headed. So... Uh, Ross LeBaron has been working on greenhouse designs for years and has come up with one he thinks will work very well for our purposes. And uh, we're starting to build a model right at the moment. But what I wanted to get to is another matter. Uh, he has wanted me to market them all along. Uh, he would design it, we'd get people to build them, and then it was to me to market the greenhouses across the nation. The design that he's come up with at the moment includes an awful lot of concrete for door shutters and uh, to truck those across the country would be totally prohibitive. But he says, no, I want these for locally, for to lease land on his ranches, possibly here. Uh, and put them up locally instead of shipping them. He might come up with another design, which he has, of something lighter that could be shipped out to other places in the country. But his thought is this. He believes that there's to be a gathering in this area uh, of Zion. Uh, he has believed that for a lot of years, even as we believe that. But we believe it will be God's own people from his church, and he thinks it's going to be a mixture of Mormons and people from that church. So this is going to be interesting the way this turns out. So I was going to make an infomercial with pictures of the greenhouse with the plants growing in it and all that. And, uh, and pictures of his ranches with the mountains around and show that it's wilderness and explain about the springs and the water and, and various things about it. People being together so they can have security and everything from their own community. Uh, and I was fine with that. We could do that. Now the other day he added another dimension and this is going to require some thought and study and prayer because he says I want this to be bold. 
I want you to tell people where paradise is and where the Garden of Eden was and where the promised land is and that they need to come to the promised land because it's going to be the only place protected during this time. So he wants a pretty straightforward, powerful message in this infomercial. And my first thought was, Ross, you're going to you're going to trim your potential buyers from here down to there. And he said, Well, that's okay. If they can't handle this, they don't belong here anyway. So I'm in a conundrum in a way from several standpoints. One of them being that there is instruction in Revelation 11, even to the two witnesses, to leave out the outer court of the Gentiles and just deal with the church and then the worship therein, uh, at least at first. And then later on, of course, the message goes to the whole world later in the chapter. But initially, we see in Zechariah 4 that even those two will be teaching all seven churches, showing that all seven do exist here at the end. They weren't just nose to tail. It may have been that, but they all exist in attitude and practice at the end, or they wouldn't be teaching all seven. But they do that first, and then to the world during the Great Tribulation for 1260 days. So, what I'm debating, and I told Ross this, I said, I don't know whether I'm comfortable with that kind of message right now or not. Uh, I need some time to think and pray about that and go over some scriptures. Uh, it might be that you can do a historical and geological uh, exposition of the area and what's here as opposed to preaching the gospel. Uh, but where is the separation there? And, and what would God have me do at this time? Uh, would it be to get something out there a little early that has people's somewhat their attention and then later when people gather uh, they'll see uh, but signs and wonders healings are primarily I think how God is going to stir people I don't know that but that seems to be scripture so it puts me in a situation where I don't want to even try to do that unless I feel that something that God would have me and us do he said he even told me he says if you put this message out there you may have to go hide <laughs> uh, you know from the powers that be and the democrats and the liberals and the whoever uh, that doesn't scare me I, I'm, I'm not worried about that because we do have God's protection and I believe that but I don't know whether he wants that kind of message put out there or not. And that's why I bring it up to you, uh, because I think I need to go away. I talked a little bit about taking a sabbatical, which I, I like to do in the summer, and give me a chance to recharge and to pray and to think and to fast and to, to, to just be out in the mountains by myself. And uh, I was thinking of that, and then when this hit... <laughs> I thought, I better go do this, because the way things are in the nation, you wonder how long will it hold together and so on. Uh, 
And we don't know that. But we know there's more trouble coming. So I was wondering, should I go? And then when this hit, I thought, you know, I need to really get away and, and think this thing through thoroughly and so on. So I'm going to do that. Uh, there's also kind of going viral now a message from a, he's an evangelical preacher in Kentucky. Have any of you seen that situation? Uh, somebody sent it to me from Kansas that I haven't heard from in years because he said, this sounds an awful lot like what you've been preaching, so I think you ought to listen to it. And I don't usually listen to preachers, period, because I don't want my mind uh, taken away from Scripture by a minister's or a Protestant's thoughts and ideas, if you see what I mean. He says, if they bring not this message, don't allow them in your house. And that's radio, television, or any other way. So, I'm careful about that, but since he said it sounds like what you're teaching, I said, well, I'll give it a listen. It's only 15 minutes. But the essence of it was, and I thought this was kind of interesting, uh, he said he had some dreams starting in December. And he said, I'm not a prophet. He says, but these were very clear. And he says, it was like you had a 12-month calendar there. And it was in December, and the calendar started flipping, January, February, March. And when it hit March, we tapped it three times, and it, it seemed like there was something heavier. I, I forget. And it said, brace yourself for March then it flipped April, it flipped May and when June flipped got the three fingers thing again on June and said brace yourself well the COVID hit pretty hard in March is when it hit and these riots and all this stuff started in June <laughs> now it went on to say that the calendar flipped through July and August, and when it hit September, same thing again, three times. And October, three times, and November, three times. And then that was the end of it. So he says, I don't know whether this means anything or doesn't, but he said it started in December, in March, in June. You both needed to brace yourself for it. So he says, well, if this continues in September, October, November, he didn't know, but he says, wait till the end of November before you criticize. This is the way he just kind of left it there. But we do have the election coming up, leading up September, October, November, and things are getting worse day by day. Uh, do we have a relatively free July and August and then stuff starts getting worse again in September? I don't know. I have no idea whether he had any special insight with that dream or not. Uh, but I do expect things to get worse and worse day by day, week by week, and month by month. Uh, who knows what kind of false flag thing they'll throw out or how these riots will escalate uh, just this morning. Uh, there was a protest on I-5 in Seattle, and they shut down the freeway, the protesters. And uh, a car started through, 
and in this little video, some shots were heard, and the woman driving the car apparently said she heard shots. I just got a sketchy thing up about it and all the details. But she apparently gunned it and went on through and hit two or three people, and the video looked like a head flying off. I don't know. It might have been a purse. I didn't, you know, it's just so quick and gone. But, uh, where will that lead? Who knows? This 4th of July may turn into an inferno in different places before it's over. Sometimes they don't start these things till afternoon so that they can go on into the night and get worse. <coughs> you start it in the morning, it might kind of fizzle out by evening. So I, I don't know. I have no insight there necessarily, except that I know the scriptures say it's going to get worse and worse and worse. So uh, we need to brace ourselves and be aware, well, to use his word, be aware with God so uh, while I take this time to go and try to study all this out and decide where God would have us go I would appreciate your prayers that he lead and guide my mind and thoughts uh, so that we come up with his will because it doesn't matter to me uh, I could go on there and hawk greenhouses and try to raise money in order for us to make our own from some of the proceeds or whatever uh, and I had no problem with that but when he adds this other dimension in there and wants a message to go out then I got to rethink it and be sure that's what God would have because it doesn't matter at all to me one way or the other except he said you need to be bold and I says well if I can believe in it which I believe the message is there and I feel it's up to me to do it you don't know how bold I can be <laughs> uh, he doesn't you don't either <laughs> but uh, if we go with this we may find out of course if he says be bold yeah you can talk about the promised land and all this but you're not preaching the gospel to the world and uh, it would probably be toned down somewhat just to present the information after all, an infomercial can't be more than about 30 minutes anyway, if you're going to have anybody's attention. And at least 15 of that have to be about the greenhouses. So 5, 10, 15 minutes with his bold message is all there's room for. Of course, I don't know all that he has in mind at this point, but he wants a message to go out. And uh, any message I give, I want to be from God, not from Ross Libera. I want to be sure that that's the case. So... I'm truly serious. I, I want God's will in this thing, whether to proceed with that part of it or not. And if so, uh, is it just straight marketing, or is there a spiritual message of some kind involved? So uh, I wanted to to say those things, uh, so you are aware of what's going on and why, and, and so on. Now let's get back to John 15. I started into this uh, talking about Christ and his approach to us, about the vine and us being branches that have to be connected and so on. And we got down to verse 8 on he's glorified, the Father is, that we bear much fruit. And that that makes us his disciples. And of course we went to uh, the fruit of the Spirit and show that the fruit that we are produced are to produce is the fruit of the Spirit 
listed there in Galatians. And that makes us his disciples. Now let's pick it up and go on down because the main point that I really want to get to is what Christ offers us in this passage. There's a build-up to it is what I've been working on as to what he has in mind for us, what he wants to confer on us, and for us to see his attitude about it. And we've seen so far that he is very, very positive. He wants us to produce spiritually. He wants us to be prepared and qualified for his kingdom so that his grace can be extended and that gift be given. So he has a very positive attitude toward us. Uh, He is not willing that any should be lost, but that all should be saved. Now that I commented on a little bit that... Some of the worst people in the world, in history, uh, have murdered millions of people, some of them. And yet they never understood truth. They never understood the true God, or any God for that matter, maybe. But they're not lost, because no man can be judged until he has the truth to be judged by, whether he lives and follows the truth or not. So, there are a lot of people that we might say, those need to all go to hell, (laughs) you know. But God isn't that way. He doesn't think that way. He thinks, I want to save them all, if at all, possible. Now, he he will do it for the majority, because he is a successful God. He would not have started this project if he weren't going to succeed at it. So... Christ did say, though, that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, obviously, there are some who will rebel against God entirely and therefore have to be destroyed so that they don't upset the universe and the kingdom forevermore like Satan has done to this point. But he's going to be bound and never allowed to again interfere. Period. Anyway, with that in mind, then, and his positive attitude, let's read on. In verse 9 and down. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Continue you in my love. Now, he's saying here that the love between his Father and him, which we recognize that they are totally unified, they don't argue, they don't fight, they live in complete peace with one another which is something you and I simply cannot grasp or understand is complete peace it's it's foreign to us beyond our ability to comprehend but they have that kind of love and closeness the father and I are one he says a little later here in John that we're one We, we are unified totally so he says I've loved you the same way that my father and I love each other. He doesn't diminish that. So when we read of the love between the father and the son, we need to be able to include with that that he loves us as much as he loves his father. That goes beyond our comprehension also. 
As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. I'm repeating that. A lot of people think God is harsh, that he's mean, that he's trying to get us on things so that he can send us to the lake of fire. Not his attitude at all. He loves us the same way he loves his Father and his Father loves him. That's a lot of love. So that's coming from his side. That is not a problem, except that we need to grasp it and understand how much he loves us. Every one of us, every human, no matter how bad they are, he has that kind of love. And he's going to do his level best to save everybody from themselves and Satan. Now he's talking to his disciples here and the rest of the world does not have this kind of love but he's saying to them if you'll love this way then you will be my followers my disciples and he says continue you in my love don't take it for granted don't set it aside. Don't doubt it. Continue in it. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. Now, if you don't, that implies, I think, that you who understand and don't abide in my love are going to be cutting yourself off from it in some form or fashion. He will not treat you the same way if you decide to go the way of the world and Satan that he treats you if you decide to go his way. He'll treat you better if you go his way. Now, I don't think his love for any human being is going to be quelled or stopped. He will not have a happy day when he has to burn up the chaff. That will be a very, very sad day. But it will also get rid of animosity and rebellion and hate and all those negative emotions that are extant today. So people will either be converted and get away from that, or they will continue in it and have to be mercifully destroyed so that they don't make continue in their own unhappiness and make other people unhappy as well. There are a lot of facets to, to his love, but he does make it conditional here to us. He's talking to his disciples here, not the world at this point. Abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. So he says... I kept the commandments, and the Father and I abide together in love. And if you will keep my commandments, then you and I can abide together in love. And if you have, the, by far, the most powerful beings in the universe, with the power of life and death, with the power of blessing and cursing, with the power to do anything they wish, wouldn't it be 
good to be on their good side. They're the decision makers. Communist leaders aren't. American, well, I can't call them leaders anymore. People in charge aren't. <laughs> but God is. And he has everything to do with your life. So he says, I'll keep loving you and we'll abide together in love if you keep the commandments. These things have I spoken to you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. Now, as a human being, think about it. Look back on your life. When has your joy been full? We've all had a mixture of frustration and grief and ups and downs. We've had times when we were happy, times when we were joyful, and then other times when we we're frustrated and miserable. <laughs> That's just the human frame. That's what we are. That's the way it is. It's a human. But he's saying here, and that joy is one of the fruit of the Spirit, you know, that your joy remain in you and that it be full. So he says, if you will obey the laws I've set there, follow my procedures, then you can have joy. He wants us to be joyful. It's been said, I guess, scientifically they checked, and it uses an awful lot less muscles to smile than it does to frown. When everything turns down, it takes more effort. Well, just do it. Smile. Fairly easy. Frown. I have to push it down. Well, it's beginning to fall down, but I still have to push some. <laughs> he wants us to be joyful, to live life of joy. That doesn't mean we won't have frustrations, trials, and temptations, no. But overall, he wants us to be happy in life, to be joyful. I see that when you come in the door here. We're all happy to be here. We're happy to see each other. We speak kindly and lovingly to each other for a couple, three, four hours, and hopefully more than that through the week. Uh, but there's a time to come and be happy and joyful and have a meal together, and then we go back to living. And sometimes that living is not quite as happy as we'd like it to be. But he says, if we keep his commandments... He will love us and we will love him and be close and that will bring a sense of joy, a sense of fulfillment. Now when I find my joy slipping and I'm maybe not as happy as I would like to be, put it that way, what do I do? What do I do? Kick the dog? Smite the cat? I'm not married anymore, so I can't beat up on my wife. What do I do? Go to God. Go talk to Him about whatever problems bothering me, whatever's causing my happiness and joy meter to, to drop, to get it back where it ought to be. 
And the only peace and solace, really, that any of us have, ultimately, is in our relationship with God. He holds the key to blessing. He holds the key to life. He holds the key in every way. You know, humans, sometimes we need somebody to talk to, somebody to get it off our chest with, uh, somebody to feel sorry for us or whatever it is that we need from them. And for us to obtain that sometimes from others, from friends, uh, is okay. Sometimes it's wise. Sometimes it's stupid. Uh, depending on who you talk to and what you say. So, uh, we have to learn the difference between wise and stupid. But with God, there's nothing stupid. With Him, He's not going to go tell all your personal life and business to somebody else. Two will know about it. The Father and the Son. And Satan may hear some of it and try to accuse you, but they know how to handle him. But they're not going to come down and tell everybody in the church your business. They're just not. They're going to do what they can to help you solve the problem. They'll do what they can to help bless you, unless you're being stubborn and rebellious, and then you may be chastened <laughs> or something. But if you go to them and get your attitude straight, they will help you come to a peaceful, happy, joyful solution. Maybe not to all your problems, but to your attitude about those problems. Because we're all going to have problems. The question is, are we going to let them pull us down or will we count it all joy when we have trials and troubles and tribulations? Because that's what he tells us to do. Count it all joy. So it isn't a matter of whether you have a trial or a test or a tribulation that's the problem. It's your attitude toward it. Because we're all going to have them. Now will we take it in faith and trust that God will see us through it? And that he will ultimately cause things to be right. All things work together for good for them that love God and keep his commandments. So there may be rapids for a while, some rough water, but if you keep obeying and you keep your attitude right, it'll all work together for good in the long run. And since we know that, then we have to go to him to ask for his help, his spirit, to deal with the current situation and to have a good attitude about it and count it joy. Alright, if I'm having a trial and a trouble, it isn't any fun, but what is it doing? Is it helping me to learn to obey? Is it helping me to get on my knees and turn to God and seek His answers? In other words, is it going to have a positive effect in my life? So, that's why we count it joy. We don't let it get us down. Depression and frustration are not fruits of the Spirit. They're not. Love, joy, happiness, peace are fruits of the Spirit. So, if you're being depressed, 
and upset and angry and jealous, envious, sinful, name the works of the flesh. If you're having those problems, then there needs to be an attitude adjustment hour, or three or five, until you get back to the point where you're looking to God with a positive attitude and a joyful attitude, because whatever is happening to you is going to help you in the long run. All things will come out good. Whatever it is. Because what it does is test you. It makes you turn to God. Because you won't find an answer anywhere else. Now you may get some help from people who are led by the Spirit of God. Don't get me wrong. But your ultimate source of comfort and help is with the Father and the Son. There's no other, there's no other question. You can't rebuke demons. They won't leave. But if you call on the Father and the Son, they can make them leave. They're the ultimate answer for everything. So he says, keep my commandments and abide in his love so that your joy might be full. Your joy isn't full. You need to go to God and repent of whatever attitudes you've got so that they can be replaced with peace and joy. You might have to get rid of some things in your life, some attitudes, some approaches, some actions in order to come to have that because the way you're living is causing your depression and your attitude toward it. These things have I spoken to you that your joy might remain and be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Well, there's a very high standard. He's just been telling us how much he loves us. And he's going to tell us some more here in a second. And he says, I want you to love each other the same way I have loved you. That's godly love. Not just human emotion, but godly love. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. If you have a human friend who would lay down his life for you, that's pretty rare. Pretty rare. There are people, in some cases, and Paul talks about that, it isn't right here, but Paul says, we don't often do it, but perchance, maybe, somebody might lay down their life for a friend. It's not a normal human thing to do. There have been people who would step in front of a president and take a bullet for it. Literally, people who are willing to do that. They've run it through their minds and emotions quite a bit, I would suspect, before they ever come to the point that they would mentally and emotionally be willing to do so. Now, there are times in an emergency where you haven't thought about it at all, but if your kid's running in front of a car, you would jump in front of the car to throw the kid back and take the bullet. There have been people who have drowned 
trying to save others from drowning. So there are times when human beings will pay the ultimate sacrifice for somebody, not even having thought about it, but just as a reaction because they see danger and they want to stop it. That isn't necessarily godly love. That's just sort of built into us. Is gotta stop that. But to think it through, would I step in front of somebody and take a bullet for them? That requires more thought and more emotion and more training. Christ thought about it a long time. He and his Father, before the foundations of the earth were laid, he knew Adam and Eve and all of us would sin and that Jesus Christ would have to come to this earth and die for all of us. So they did it premeditatedly. They did it as part of their plan, knowing it would have to happen. And he had to live with that. They both had to live with that for a long, long time before he actually came and did it. Greater love has no man than he lay his life down for his friends. Now, there are different ways to lay down that life. We can talk about physical death, which he did for us, and premeditatedly and very, very painful. But let's not forget that he also lived a life for 33 and a half years of absolute perfection for us. He didn't have to give up being God who does not want to sin, could care less about sin, and only wants to think positive, uplifting thoughts. <coughs> he didn't have to give that up except for you and me. But it's often overlooked, I think, by religion as a whole. Well, Jesus died for us, therefore we're saved. Now, his death was very difficult for him. And his father did forsake him when he was on that stake. And he felt very, very alone. He died alone. But let's not forget that for 33 and a half years, he lived for us. He had to die in perfection. Had he sinned once in 33 and a half years, he would have had to have died for his own sins and stayed dead. Eternal. One sin. The wages of sin is death. He never committed one sin in 33 and a half years. Now you talk about tough times. You and I have trouble going 33 and a half minutes without some kind of sin, of omission or commission or a bad thought or wrong thought or whatever. But he controlled his mind through staying close to his father to the point that he never sinned. Now he was tempted in all points like as we are. So the thoughts of sin went through his mind. The temptation to sin went through his mind. If you don't think it, you couldn't commit it, right? So for him to be tempted, he had to think about stealing. 
He had to think about murder. He had to think about adultery. He had to think about all the commandments. He had to think about doing something that his father wouldn't approve of, which would be idolatry, to put himself ahead of the law and ahead of his father. All those thoughts had to go through his mind for him to be tempted like we are. So the temptation is not a sin. When lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. So when the thought comes into your mind, it's not sin yet. It's thinking about sin. It's the thought of sin. But until you allow that to turn in your head and then mentally consider it seriously or to go do it, then it's sin. Now he tells us there in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 that even the thoughts of sin are sin as well as the actual committing of that sin. But the thought that comes into the head is not yet sin unless we coddle it and entertain it and think about it and let it become something that is unclean in our mind. So there's a transition from the thought and the temptation to the actual sin in your mind or sin in your hand. So he, people try to tell me sometimes, well, he didn't have thoughts like that. He had to. How can you be tempted if the thought isn't there? Wouldn't that be nice if you never had the temptation, never had the thought? You wouldn't have anything to resist. But when you have something to resist, you have to resist it. So, yeah, he was tempted in all points, like as we are, and therefore the thought of sin went through his mind. He thought of those things. And then he said, Father, help me not let this conceive and become sin, and he put it out of his mind. Which is what you and I are to do. When we start thinking of sin, it says, bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. So, the thought will come, the feeling will come, the desire will come for whatever it is you want to do, but then you have to bring it into captivity. You have to shut it down, stop it. And that is not easy. Because that's where the human mind wants to go. It's where it wants to go. Well, his mind wanted to go there. I think sometimes we don't realize that Christ was a human being. And that he was had human emotions, human feelings, human desires, whatever they might have been. And he had wrong desires that came. But he stopped it before it conceived and brought forth sin. There's what he did for us. He brought every thought into control one way or another before it germinated and became set. Do, you, do we realize how awesome that is? How incredibly awesome that is? We can't go hardly any time without some 
some, I guess idolatry probably is the worst and the easiest. The first one. It's so easy to put anything ahead of God, especially self. Worshipping other gods in woods and stone and gold and silver is nothing compared to putting yourself ahead of God's law. That comes easy. That's, oh, that's easy. We commit idolatry and, and we are our own biggest idol. You may have other idols. Movie stars, sports figures, cars, golf balls, whatever. But your biggest idol is self. We want ourselves to have what we want, and we want to be comfortable, and we want whatever that takes. So we are tempted to put ourselves ahead of God more than for any other thing that we might be tempted to do. His law is there, and I feel like breaking that one today. <laughs> you know, you, you may not think that consciously, but something comes up and, oh, I'd like to do that. Wouldn't that be fun? I'm wearing a mask. I might as well go and rob the bank. I roll eyes on that one. Anyway, let's go on. He laid down his life for 33 and a half years by giving, serving, loving, teaching, setting a right example. In some ways, that had to have been harder than actually the death itself. I don't know. But I know we all struggle with doing what he did for 33 and a half years. I do know that. So, he laid his life down for us, both in the way he lived and in the way that he died. Now in verse 14 is what we've been leading up to. You are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. You are my friends. We all would like to have friends. We enjoy friends when we have them. We like to be friends with each other. But he says if we'll obey him, we'll be his friend. Now what better friend could you have? One that was willing to live for you and one that was willing to die for you. Pretty rare is a human being to have that kind of friend. Henceforth, I call you not servants. He's raising us here from one level to another. I call you not servants, for the servant knows not what his Lord does. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known to you. Now, if you're a family and you have servants around, and some people still do to this day, they have hired people around that take care of various things for them, their entourage or their employees. But if they want to talk about their lives and their finances and their stuff, they get away from the servants and just talk among the family. You just don't say everything in front of the servants or in front of social friends or whatever. And a lot of people really, truly value their privacy. They don't want anything said about them, period, good or bad, it seems, sometimes. You know, some people, if you sneezed, 
Some people would be upset if you told somebody, I, I heard Paul sneeze. Or whatever. I mean, maybe that's taking it a little bit too far, but some people are so private, they don't want anything said about them. And you don't know that till you incur their wrath sometimes, that they're that private. And some people are just an open book. They don't care. Say anything you want. But we're not supposed to be saying bad things about each other, period, anyway. That's Satan's job, not our job. And he's going to be cut off from it. So he says, everything that I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. We have this book, and he has, in it, told the prophets what to say, told the apostles what to say. Write it down for my people so that they know the whole plan, they know the whole purpose. We're not keeping secrets from them. And even the few things that we don't want them to know for their own good, uh, we'll withhold just that. Like, what's the day and the hour Christ is going to return? He's withheld that. So, but everything important for the most part, everything we need to know for salvation, everything we know need to know to get along with each other and be friends, he has told us. Somewhere in this book. Every facet of life is discussed in this book. There's no part of your life that you can't find something about in here. Whatever the subject. Doesn't matter. It's all in here. It's the book that he gave us as the operating manual. Now I know, men. It's time to assemble something, so the last thing we do is read the directions. Right? Hey, I'm smart enough, I got this. <laughs> I've taken things apart to put in a piece that I left out, not having read one, two, three, four, five, six. I've kind of learned over time it's probably better to read it follow it same with this if you want to live a successful human life there's not a subject about humanity and relationships in your life that isn't in here it's in here so as a true friend he gave us the instruction book got a problem go to him in prayer Go to his word in meditation and thought. And you'll find an answer. I did not say you would like the answer you found. Because you want to do what you want to do. But the answer is there if you're willing to accept it and follow it. It's there. And you'll be happier if you follow it than if you remain stubborn and don't want to accept it. Guaranteed. So he's not calling us servants anymore. Well, I want to serve God voluntarily in every way that I can. And I pray every day that I be his servant and serve him and do what he wants done. But he does not keep us in the status of a servant per se who comes and works and goes home 
and just does a job for you. Now we're friends. We're in his inner circle. He thinks about us every day, every one of us. He considers and ponders our hearts every day, every one of us. Because if we're keeping his commandments, he raises our status to friends. Now let's understand, he hasn't done that for most of the world. Most of the world is not a friend of God. In fact, he even tells us that if you are friends with the world, you are the enemy of God. So, most of the world is in animosity, enmity, the basis for the word enemy, in, of God. They are against God. They're against everything about God. Our nation is getting to the point, if you're white or Christian, you should be guillotined or something happens to you back. Now they're even saying that even if you go to church, you cannot sing in church. Because if you're sitting six feet apart and you sing, your breath comes out harder and you're violating the six foot. This thing's just getting ludicrous beyond comprehension. We're going to come to services and we're going to sing. And we're going to sit close together and we're going to pray to God for protection from the things that are coming. People are getting where they're alienated from each other. You get within six feet of somebody in a store, they're liable to hit you or scream at you or look balefully at you or something more and more because we're being isolated and alienated from each other and wearing masks and hiding from one another. And you can't even hear what everybody's saying. I'm half deaf as it is. And then they put a mask on and say, Boo, do, 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 do. Yeah, sure. Yeah, why not? <laughs> I don't know what you said. But we can't be alienated. We need to be friends. We need to be able to give each other a hug. We need to be able to stand and talk. God intended that. And he said that these things would not come nigh our dwelling once people start really dying. Some of what we've got has been a fraud just to destroy the economy anyway. And it isn't that dangerous. But there's some dangerous ones coming. Believe me. Because a third of us are going to die of famine and pestilence. That's scripture. Anyway, apart from that, you are my friends if you do what I command you and you will be a friend. So only the commandment keepers are his friends. Okay? The rest of the world is not. They're enmity against him. And if we are friends with the world, then we are his enemies. He's made that very, very clear. Our fellowship is not with the world. Our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. According to the first John, I can go back and read it to you. Probably ought to. which came to mind in this context. If I can find it. 1 John 1, verse 3. That which we have seen and heard declare we to you that you also may have fellowship 
with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That's where our first and highest fellowship is. And these things write we to you that your joy may be full. Now Christ said that to his disciples there in John 15. John, later on, is repeating the exact same phrase. That our fellowship is the Father and the Son, that our joy can be full. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanses us from all sin. So he's saying our first and most important fellowship is with our friend, Jesus, and his Father, who is also our friend. And if we have fellowship with the world, Paul said we're enemies of God. And here he says, if we walk in the light or in the truth, in the, within the commandments, then our fellowship with one another also counts in that family structure. He will include us all. So we are supposed to fellowship with one another and not with the world. Just the way it is. Because we're in a special situation as the friends of God. Should I repeat that? I have several times, I guess. We are God's friends because we are commandment keepers. That's the category he puts us in. Do we have trouble going to God sometimes in prayer? Yeah. Do we sometimes have trouble going to people who are supposed to be our friends? Yeah. Should we overcome it? Yeah. Should we overcome our resistance to God? Yeah. And our resistance to each other because we're all in the family together and it's supposed to be a loving, joyful relationship. And if we find that we're falling short of that, we need to do something about it. We've got to get past it. We've got to change whatever we need to change so that we can all be friends walking in the light of God as his friends and friends with each other. That's what he's telling us here. And John made it very clear because he was a friend of Christ and walking in the light instead of in the world. So he's offering us a serious upgrade here. I always flew coach class. And I had won a sales award with mobile homes. We had dealerships. And I was the leading salesman for Silvercrest Homes in the area. The, the leaders from different areas got a free trip to Hawaii. And everything provided. So Marla wasn't feeling well. 
and uh, she was in Alaska and I was in Nevada. And she says, well, I'm just not up to the trip. So they sent our daughter Leslie with me. She was about 14, maybe, I guess, 15, I don't remember. And uh, we're sitting there in the airport ready to get on coach class, which is what the Silvercrest had provided. And suddenly they called me up to the podium. And they said, we've decided to give you and your wife, didn't know it was my daughter, uh, a first class upgrade. Would you like to have it? Yeah. All the way to Hawaii, first class? Oh, you bet. Man, they, right in front of the first class seats, they had two big tables laid out with every kind of wonderful and unclean food that you could think of. <laughs> and all the drinks that you could possibly have. And I considered that upgrade pretty nice. Leslie got sick and couldn't touch any of it and stayed that way for about three days on the trip, but that's another thing. But from my standpoint, that first class upgrade meant something. All the way over there, with, oh, and the seats were bigger and laid back further and food and drink, and that was great. Loved it. Christ gave us the first class upgrade. Do we appreciate it? Do we get it? Do we understand it? Do we live it? Wow. We get to go first class all the time. We always have a friend in Jesus or Emmanuel. We always have a friend in the Father. And we should always have friends among ourselves. Because we're trying to be like Him and that's the way He is. Now you talk about an upgrade. You're limited in your friendships. He limits us. He says, don't be friends with the world. Forget about the world out there. Be friends with me, my father, and each other. <coughs> Limit it. Can you do business with the world? Can you do this with the world and that with the world? Yeah. But you don't hang out with the world. Because if you hang out with them, the first thing you know, you'll be thinking and doing what they're doing. I've never seen anybody walk into a bar and preach Jesus and have everybody come sit with him and him buy them drinks and everybody get along fine. I don't think I've even seen anybody try. But I have seen people who were trying to serve God who would go into a bar and first thing you know, the jokes are dirty, the language is dirty, uh, they may get involved with somebody romantically, if you can use that word at the bar, whatever. You don't go into a bar and raise the level of Christianity. You go into a bar, your level of Christianity gets lower. I don't go to Vegas much. Everything there is either illegal immoral or cost a lot of money. What business do I have there being a friend of Las Vegas? I hit the freeway and go on through and maybe gas up, but I don't go to any of those places anymore. There's nothing there for me that that I need. There might be things there I might want, but not anything I need. So just 
Chỉ có mình I want to be a friend of Christ You've not chosen me I have chosen you I've put you on my team I've given you a first class upgrade You're my friends now For all things I've heard of my father I've made known to you Now Since I've chosen you I've ordained you That you should go and bring forth fruit to begin to act out love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, all the fruit of the Spirit. And that your fruit should remain. You don't just do it for a week or two and then go back to being carnal. That whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. <coughs> so you can ask anything of your friend God, of your friend Jesus or Emmanuel. He does say that it has to be within his will. Uh, what about you? Somebody asks you to do something, you're either compliant and you say, okay, I can I can do that. I can live with that. <coughs> or you say, nah, I think I'll pass on that. If they ask you to do something that's against your will, you're not too likely to do it. Or if you do it against your will, you're not going to enjoy it, and it's not going to turn out too good. But if they ask you something you want to do, isn't that better? And you're willing. Yeah, I'd love to do that for you. No problem. Well, God is that way. So we have to seek His will, and it's revealed here in this book. And it's revealed in prayer. When he can put thoughts in, we pray in certain ways, and he can put the right thoughts in our mind to help us to a solution of something. He's willing. He wants to. But now if we say, God, uh, I want to rob a bank this afternoon, and uh, I would love it if you would protect me and not let me get shot, and not let me get caught, and not let me go to jail... Uh, help me get this robbery pulled off and and I'll have that money and I'll be so happy and it would be a joyful thing for me God if you just bless me with that bank money I doubt it's going to happen you're going to get shot or go to jail <laughs> because God isn't going to help you do something that's against his will just not going to but if it is according to his will, he says, ask me anything. I'll do it for you. Now, some of those things may take a while. You may ask for eternal life. That's certainly within his will. But there's a plan about when that's going to happen at the first resurrection. So you can pray toward it, but it's not going to happen today. You're not going to be personally, individually raptured just because you ask for eternal life. So everything in its time and way and purpose. But there are some things that you might ask, if it's according to his will, that might happen immediately. I've seen people healed of some pretty serious things instantly. Obviously God's will was being asked at that time and in the right way 
and it was his will to do it, it happened. I've seen it many times. So, this is a wonderful promise. But whatsoever you shall ask of the Father, in my name, that is, by my authority, with my approval, he may give it you. These things I command you, that you love one another. And if the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. They don't want to be corrected. They don't want to be told what to do. Again, go into the bar, sit down to somebody, and he's obviously been having quite a few drinks. And you turn to him and say, well, you know, I serve God, and he says temperance in all things. And you appear to be getting beyond temperate. In fact, you look really drunk. You shouldn't have another drink. Now, is that man going to love you? I kind of doubt it. In fact, he might get up and use you for a floor mop, <laughs> you know. The world will love its own, but it won't love anybody that's doing things different than it is. So there's no sense in you going out there and even preaching to them because they're not going to change. You've tried it with your relatives. Didn't do a bit of good, did it? No. But you keep trying sometimes. Unless God calls, it isn't going to happen. He has to choose whom he will choose. And you choosing your relatives doesn't get the job done. Because you've prayed about your relatives sometimes, haven't you? And hoped that they would see the light. And they don't. They're against it. They hate it. And eventually they keep pushing, they'll hate you too. So it must be contrary to God's will to call that person at this time. So you're just spinning your wheels and ruining your relationship. Back off. God will choose them when He chooses them. You can't do it. Now He has said He eventually will choose them all. So if you're praying, God, please save my relatives, He will. But it'll be probably in the second resurrection. Not now. So he'll do it when his will, the when is the key, when it is his will. But if you just keep beating on that subject and beating on your relatives, all you're doing is making trouble. Doesn't do any good. He will do it when it is his will to so do. So, yeah, it's a good thing that your relatives be called and saved. But maybe not now. He will choose the time. So he'll answer your prayer, but it may be a while. You may have to wait a while. But don't beat your head against the post in the meantime. It won't do you any good. So that's enough for today.